Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 226. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 226 you're listening to. My guest today is Rachel Field. Rachel is a mastering engineer located in Seattle, Washington, and she is one half of Resonant Mastering, along with her business partner, Ed Brooks. Rachel is also a freelance recording engineer doing work in various studios in Seattle, but she spends the majority of her time there at Resonant working with a very diverse client base, uh, international and local clients. So very excited to bring you this interview. Rachel Field coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, I'm all jacked up on coffee, so here's a bit of a rant for you. I watched this documentary on Netflix last night. It's a Rolling Stones documentary called Ole Ole Ole, a trip across Latin America. You got to check it out. It's, um, of course, the Stones in Latin America, as the title would suggest. Ten City Tour wrapping up in Cuba. What's really touching about this documentary is the passion of the fans in the audience. Because a lot of these cities that the Stones are playing were at one time dictatorships where you could go to prison for listening to the Stones. While political turmoil still exists in many of those countries, the outpouring of emotion, just pure love of music really brought a tear to my eye watching it. They really do a great job highlighting the fans in this documentary. And it really just made me realize, you know, it's amazing how we can get stuck in our little audio bubbles and focus on our gear and our self-absorbed kind of concepts about audio and forget about music. Forget about, you know, those of us who do work in music, forget about the task at hand and bringing those emotions outside of the speakers. So on that note, I, I went out on record store day and I bought some records. Yes, on record store day. What a concept, huh? I bought, um, I actually, I didn't even realize it was mastered by one, by WCA former guest Pete Lyman until I just pulled it out of the bag. But uh, Otis Redding with Booker T and the MGs captured live at the Monterey International Pop Festival. Yeah, Pete did that. Check out Pete's episode. I uh, also did, uh, also got uh, Fleetwood Mac, the alternate Fleetwood Mac Rumors record, alternate takes from Rumors. Also got Working with the Miles Davis Quintet, which includes. John Coltrane, Red Garland, Paul Chambers, Philly Joe Jones in the band. I, you got to check out the documentary on John Coltrane on Netflix, as I, uh, I'm reminded as I say his name. I also got a single of Valley Girl from Frank and Moon Zappa with uh, You Are What You Is as the B-side. So, you know, whether it's records or musical documentaries, or going out and actually seeing live music and supporting and just showing up, you know? Not from a business perspective, uh, just for the pure joy of it. It can remind you why we do this and can really kind of refocus you, bring you back to true north. I highly encourage it. Don't just sit in your studio all day and obsess about gear. Please, don't do it. Get out. 
see people and experience music. I think it'll, uh, it'll cleanse your soul. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, that's it. Let's get to it. Rachel Field here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. You're talking to us from Resonant Mastering, which is located in Seattle. That is correct. And that's a business that you run with Ed Brooks, right? Yes. And mm -hmm. you are the two primary mastering engineers there. Yes, we are. We'll get to that. Let's go back in time a little bit. Okay. Where did audio really become a pivotal point of your life? I would say my whole life music has been a huge part of it. Audio didn't actually even come into play until much later in life, though. So it was around 2009, 2010 when I really got involved with audio. And that was after I moved to Seattle. Do you play an instrument? 
I play a couple instruments poorly. And, you know, I like to sing in both the car and the shower. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I play flute, alto sax, and like a couple of chords on guitar, but I've never really mastered any of them. But, I, you know, I like to noodle around. Okay. That's the extent that's ever gone. So. I'm such a bad singer, I don't even try to sing in the shower. <laughs> I don't want to offend the, the shower or the water. Yeah. You're just sparing everybody. That's right. <laughs> so you moved to Seattle in 2009 from California, if I understand correctly. Yes. Yep. Where in California were you living? So I'm from the Central Coast. At the time, I was in a town called Los Osos. I grew up in an even smaller town called Cambria, which is just, um, it's like a little beach artist retirement town just south of the Big Sur coastline. What was that like growing up there? It was pretty quiet. There's a, lo- there's a lot of natural beauty there. You know, there, there were a lot of beach trips and hikes and that kind of thing. To do anything like go to a concert or see a movie, there was a get-in-the-car road trip involved Mm. to do stuff like that. It's a pretty small town. Where did your exposure for for music come into your life? Right out of the gate. You know, my dad uh, was a musician. He played multiple instruments and just was a really passionate fan of music, many genres. Um, You know, my siblings were musical. There was a family band when I was really young. My dad was a gigging musician around town, a jazz band, and I think he was in a rock band too. But just always playing music and always singing along and always just being really, you know, not a passive listener, a real active listener and fan of music. Mm. Well, so making a huge leap here in time because you said audio didn't really become a relevant thing in your life until 2009. Is that is that mm-hmm. accurate? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. What in 2009 happened to get your attention? My whole adult life had been working in the restaurant industry. So waitressing, tending bar, that kind of thing. And that worked for me for a while because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And going to school for, you know, some unknown reason didn't really work out. And making a leap to any other career was either too much of a pay cut or just not inspiring enough, you know, but I knew I didn't want to do that anymore. I knew that after 19 years of restaurant work, (laughs) I sure as shit did not want to do it anymore. (laughs) Like I didn't care what people had for dinner anymore, you know. So I moved up to Seattle. I had really good friends that lived up here and had been visiting and really I loved the vibe. I loved that there was art everywhere, music everywhere. I went to the grocery store and there was a bluegrass band playing outside the grocery store. Like that did not happen in my town. And take your pick any night of the week, you could you could go to one of seven killer shows for $7. So that was really appealing to me. And I wanted to move up here to be close to my friends, to be in that environment and be um, hopefully inspired and stimulated. And, and maybe, and I just thought, you know, audio still wasn't on my radar. I just thought, I just, I just need like my environment to be shaken up and to be exposed to new things and get hopefully something inspiring will come along. And so what happened, and I, I think it was months, it was probably less than a year after I'd been up here in Seattle, I met a friend for breakfast, and he he's a drummer. He'd just come from a recording session, 
And he was talking about the session and all the things the engineer was doing, all these techniques the engineer was using and and how to get good sounds and, and all of that. And it just like a total cliche light bulb moment where I just went, oh, of course, obviously that's what I want to do. I want to engineer. From there, really, I haven't looked back. I was taking classes within weeks, I think, and barging through doors to get internships and mentorships and if I may ask, how old were you in, at, at that moment of clarity? 31. Okay. 30, and, 31, yeah. Okay, so early 30s. And yeah. as someone in their early 30s, obviously your decision-making process is far different than it is in your teens and your 20s. <laughs> so, Thankfully, yes. Yes, thankfully. <laughs> so what was your, your mindset? What did you think? Okay, step one and step 10. How did you lay this out in your mind? I knew step one was simply getting familiar. I didn't know what step 10 was, definitely. I had no idea. But I knew I wanted to be involved, and I was trying to stay really open to learning where my aptitude would take me. You know, I didn't know which parts of the industry I would be good at. So I tried to really keep it open and and follow the open doors as they showed up. But, you know, step one was going to school just because I didn't know how else to get involved. Cold calling studios doesn't get you very far usually. And so I started taking classes and and really, it was great for learning the vocabulary and kind of the basics. But what I really got out of school was the networking that, that was the most helpful. Where did you go to school? I went to the Art Institute of Seattle for, I think, three or four quarters. Did you find it difficult to get your head around the workflow of music creation or, or the creation of a record? Or did that come easy to you? That came easy to me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. My dad was also in production. And so I'd seen, you know, he was in TV production. And so I'd seen like kind of behind the scenes of some of that process. You know, of course, it's a different process entirely, but it, it wasn't completely Greek to me. Just the fa- the fact that there is a process behind the scenes. And being, once again, if you take that early 30s adult mindset and combine it with the accessibility to information on the internet with a little schooling, I'm sure you were able to get yourself up to speed rather rapidly. Yeah, you know, and I was hungry. I really was, like I said, I was done waitressing and I finally found that thing that sparked inspiration and motivation. And I was really, really into it. And I knew I was going to go hard. So I did. I, I mean, I took every opportunity that came along. I said yes to. I was reading manuals and, and textbooks and whatever audio material I could get my hands on. And I latched myself on to a couple of mentors and, and just try to soak in as much as possible. Who were those mentors and how did you find them? One I found pretty quickly at school. His name's Kurt Nelson, and we we had a great friendship and relationship, and he was really patient with... He was a student as well, but he he came into school with a lot of experience already. So he really was a great mentor as I went through the learning process of the technical side of things and, and all of that. Uh, we spent a lot of time outside of class in the studios of the school, and and then we, you know, we started working around town recording and mixing albums, and he was super helpful. And then from there, that was about when I got hired at RFI Mastering, which is what Resonant Mastering used to be. So RFI Mastering 
had been in Seattle since 2000. I got hired at RFI Mastering in 2011 as production manager. And so I was kind of doing both of those things concurrently. And then that's how, you know, I came to know Rick Fisher and Ed Brooks, who also became great mentors. Did did you find any resistance to being fresh out of college or fresh out of school, we'll say, and being a newcomer? Did anybody put up any uh, walls to you? No, I mean... I think that I just took the approach of being really, really honest about where I was at and what I was capable of doing and that, you know, I was a fast learner. I was really capable. I just, I think for me, it was really important to not pretend I knew more than I did. I think that in some ways made me a little more useful, <laughs> I guess, or, you know, I was I was definitely malleable. I was teachable. And I think that made me more appealing to folks in a position to take on an apprentice type of, of relationship. Yeah. Maybe that, that transparency, maturity, desire to learn probably came yeah. across. Yeah. And, and my experience with customer service has proven to be a huge asset as well. It's always fascinating to me, those who get started later, they may come to the table later on and, 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 and kind of fresh to the, to the process. But at the same time, there's, there's a clarity there I'm intrigued by. Mm -hmm. Well, so your first job straight out of school was at RFI. Yeah. And how did you approach getting that, that gig? Well, I, that goes right back down to networking in school and networking and just saying yes to every opportunity. So in school at the Art Institute, I was asked to take whatever the leadership position is there for the education chapter of AES. And so I, so I took that on and I started hosting AES meetings there at the school. And I met a lot of longtime audio professionals that way. And one in particular, a gentleman named Rick Chin, knew Rick Fisher very well. And so I guess I made a good enough impression that Rick Chin slid me the ad for this job opening. So I was able to kind of get a little bit of preparation done and, and come in for the interviews and, and feel really confident about that and use known names as references. Certainly didn't hurt. So you took on the role of production manager at RFI Mastering. Mm -hmm. Tell me what that role encompassed. Sure. It was a little bit secretarial and administrative. And then it was a lot of editing and preparing production master parts for delivery for manufacture or for distribution. Uh, a lot of QC. It was a lot of project management and kind of shepherding things through. So the engineers could really just focus on engineering. They could master things. And then I could kind of pick up all the rest of the the work that goes on around that as far as file management and generation. So like DDP creation and... Exactly. Yeah. And QCing, a lot of intense listening. Yes. Lots of intense listening, which is really good ear training. How long did you do that gig for? Five years. And I bet you really learned the flow in mastering yes. of how a mastering house runs, works, should work. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I probably can't stress enough, well, the thing that I learned is that the support of the project is as important as the engineering itself, you know. So being being here and helping guide people through the process because everybody's DIY, the indie artists, a lot of them are DIY anymore and trying to navigate through how to actually release an album 
So it's really helpful for our business to be able to offer that and be a resource. Can you dissect that process a little bit for me yeah. in terms of you say that's just as important as the engineering. So what does that entail? Yeah. So, you know, if, if an artist calls and says, I love the mastering, I want to make CDs. So then, you know, there are questions. Who are you going through? How many are you having made? And then we usually know what that particular company wants for a format to receive. So we can kind of guide them through all their options that way, you know, what to use for digital distribution and what to send for disc manufacturing. And yet again, what to use for lacquer cutting maybe who to go through for lacquer cutting and record pressing and that kind of thing. So, cause we've, we've accumulated a lot of research on those subjects. So it's helpful to just sort of have that in the bucket for our clients. Was there any um, things on the front end that you think were really critical in helping the clients out with? Well, helping make sure they're sending the correct files or tapes for mastering the mixes their engineer intended for mastering rather than the reference mixes and just helping guide that process of getting the files in, booking the sessions, making sure they knew how to get here, all that kind of thing. That's interesting. Just that that dividing up the work, so to speak, because a lot of mastering engineers nowadays with smaller budgets and, and rooms at their homes or small spaces are pretty much doing all of that. Yeah. And we've streamlined how the operation runs since we took it over and made it resonant mastering. And so we split that now just kind of as time allows. We don't have a dedicated production manager or, you know, someone that sits around and answers the phone anymore. We've we've freed up a lot of the time, kind of trimmed some of the fat, if you will. And mm. and so we both handle that. So after five years of being the production manager, it's it sounds like based on what you're saying, there were some changes made and it's clear to me that you became part of the business or a deeper part of the business. So what happened after five years? After five years, Rick Fisher decided he didn't want to own the business anymore. He didn't want to run it. And so he approached Ed and said, I went out. Do you want to buy the business? And as I understand it, Ed said, not without Rachel. So then he came to me and we decided, yes, it would be a good idea. We could become partners and buy the gear, take over the lease and become resident mastering. So the number of people involved prior to Ken Fisher leaving, how many people were there? The three of us. Oh, it was just the three of you. Okay. So essentially, yeah. Rick Fisher leaves, you and Ed Brooks take over, and it just becomes the two of you. Yeah. Rick still comes in on occasion to do a project here and there. Okay. But it really is just the two of us mostly. Okay. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. So what were the challenges in, in that changeover? And were you scared at all about just taking over? Taking over 
in general, has kind of always been my game plan. So <laughs> World domination. I, lo- I love it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's still a work in progress, but I'm coming. <laughs> but yeah, of course, it was terrifying because now all of a sudden I have to pay attention to the bottom line. I don't just punch a time card and get a paycheck. It's a lot more responsibility. And the little things you don't really think about, like figuring out how to set up an accounting system, figuring out how to pay taxes or damn, there are a lot of taxes. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Figuring out when and how those are all coming and making sure everything gets taken care of. You know, it's a little bit of a slog at first, but I think year three, we're coming up on and I think we've got it mostly under control. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, going into business with Ed Brooks was a no-brainer for me as an up-and-coming mastering engineer. And Ed Brooks has this great reputation and, and wonderful client base and was just totally down to support me in building mine and, and going forward together. So it was really kind of a no-brainer for me. So did you jump directly into the mastering chair from production manager at that point? Oh, well, so I'll back up again. As soon as I started as production manager, I started kind of elbowing my way into the studio and just sitting next to whoever was working whenever it was a possibility. And, and, Rick Fisher was always very welcoming and he he wanted me to learn from them. That was kind of the goal from the early days on was to sort of train me and, and sort of groom me into being another mastering engineer at RFI as well. So I started taking projects in 2012 at RFI as mastering engineer and being the production manager full time. So so little by little over those years, I started sitting in the mastering chair more and more frequently and taking on more and more projects. Okay. So it wasn't an overnight switch. No, no, no. So it's been you and Ed for essentially since two, uh, 2016, June of 2016. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah. And other than getting accounting and taxes and figuring out all the incredibly unfun things to deal with. (laughs) What have been the other challenges as far as how do you get your clients? Is it word of mouth? Do you put any advertising into getting clients? So as RFI Mastering and all of the decades that RFI Mastering existed and thrived, there really wasn't much advertising going on. It had been word of mouth pretty much only. And so that's that's still definitely the number one way that we get clients is word of mouth. We just recently did some revamping on our website and did the basic things like SEO, <laughs> which I guess is really helpful. And, and I recently started trying to be way more visible on social media and things like that and kind of driving more people to see me and what I do and the studio and what we're doing here. And that worked because that's how I heard about you. Yeah. Awesome. It's nice to know it's working (laughs) because it is like a whole other job. (laughs) It really is. Yeah. Yeah. How do you manage your time? I mean, you're running a business, you're a dedicated mastering engineer, and how do you manage to find time to do all the things you need to do beyond mastering in terms of the business? It is really just... It's a team effort, and only one of us is in here mastering at any given time. Well, sometimes we do work on things together, but usually one of us has enough time during the week to make sure all the bits and pieces are kind of taken care of. So things that we've done or have made things pretty mobile, like 
online invoicing and payment. So no one has to be in the building for us to accept a payment, which is one of the things we updated when we took the place over. The studio phone forwards to my cell phone. So I'm not, no one has to be in the building for those phone calls to get picked up. So I can, you know, move about my day to day and my life without actually having to be in the building while Ed's in a mastering session and vice versa. So you just reevaluated all of the different systems that were in place at RFI for resident. Curious why you didn't keep the name RFI. RFI stands for Rick Fisher Industries or Rick Fisher Incorporated or something like that. Okay. It was an option, but we really wanted to be our own thing and kind of have a little bit of a new page turned when we started the place. Did you make any announcements to existing clients? We made a Facebook post. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and then as people came in and as people called and as people sent email inquiries, then we would sort of divulge the news. And most people were really receptive and very happy for us. And how has the, the work been since you took over? Has it been steady? Have there been been any major dips? We've been very steady. And if anything, there's been an increase. Okay. Yeah. What are the things you learned from your hospitality days and working in, in food? And what have you brought over into mastering? Oh my gosh. I always, I sort of tease myself, right? Because I wanted to get out of customer service. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> So so I went from waitressing to customer service audio. And it is so true that, that bottom line, it is a customer service industry. And it isn't about making things the way I want them. It's about making it the way they want or helping them achieve their vision. And that is one of my favorite things about it, actually. And also just interacting with people, just how to engage with people Everyone's different. Some people have buttons that are (laughs) weird and you got to really be able to recognize when you may be pushing them (laughs) so you can stop. (laughs) And and also being able to smooth a tense situation out. That is a really, really useful skill, especially in a recording session. And, And just being able to read people and watch the signs and kind of head off a potential meltdown before it even hits. It's really important. Yeah. That's where the maturity thing comes into play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're in the same building that RFI was in, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned rent. So this is a building that is rented. Yep. Do you ever see a point at which you all might buy a building? We would love to do that. We would absolutely love to do that. I think about it a lot. And I mean, the, the fact is this control room, this space here is so great. I mean, it's really accurate. The way it's set up is just, you know, we are very familiar with it. We know it really well. And it would be it would be something to match or beat it. So, you know, that's the number one most important thing to me as far as I'm concerned as a mastering engineer is the listening environment and the monitors and how that all plays together. So if we could retain that, yeah, that's something we'd like to do. And so when it comes to the business and the structure of it, how do you and Ed make that work? How are you structured in terms of do you both own the gear? Is it a partnership, et cetera? Yeah, we're a 50-50 partnership. Did you create an LLC or did you just leave it as two sole proprietors or? We are an LLC, Resonant Audio, with 50-50 ownership. And things have been busy to the point where have you considered hiring others to come on board? 
Yeah, so business is really good, and it would be really helpful to have another person in. We have sort of played with that in the past, and it's it's really tough to get somebody to come in for a position like that that could even possibly care as much as we do about what's actually going out. And so a lot of it turned into more fixing <laughs> Like, like if something was done incorrectly, then we have to go back and fix it anyway. And hopefully it didn't actually go out that way. Or we have a pretty solid QC system. And yeah, I don't know. It's just it's it's good to have somebody that finds it important that things go out correctly and somebody that can talk to the clients the way we would want them to be and hospitably and professionally. So, yeah, if the right person came along. That is definitely an option. So you, you you left the world of food and still <laughs> stayed in customer service. And now we're talking about the potential of management. And Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole nother ball of wax. Yeah. So right now we seem to be doing okay with it, the two of us. You know, there are times where it's like, okay, that's too much work. But then there are times where it's 100% manageable and fine. So I wonder if, if you've suffered from this as others have who have a longer history than you of the uh, the gear lust of seeing a piece of gear and rationalizing it, buying it when you probably shouldn't be buying it. I guess with your setup, it's kind of interesting because you and Ed share this setup. Therefore, the workflow, you're not going to be changing it out just on your whims or desires. Like, ah, oh, you know what? I got rid of the compressor that we typically you know, <laughs> rely on. So I just bought this and we're going to use this. So yeah. I, I assume you don't go through the same pains that others have in that way. Is that even accurate? Probably not to the same extent because there is an element of recallability that we have to retain. So, you know, of course, we have all of our settings for every single project, every single song we've ever loaded. All of our settings are documented somewhere. And if we aren't able to recall something because, oh, that piece of gear is no longer here, then that can be a little bit of an issue. We can usually replicate it, you know, but recallability is a really huge deal for us. And we have a pretty good chain going on pretty versatile and well endowed as it is. We did just pick up another compressor last year that, you know, I'm still kind of getting my arms around using it, but I usually can get what I want with what we have here. Do you have any kind of a home setup? Not at the moment. So kind of continuing on that topic, what is your overarching philosophy in terms of money management and being an audio professional and thinking of the future of, you know, everything from Saving for retirement to surviving day to day. Did you do things differently in the world of food than you do now? I don't know. I mean, servers and bartenders are kind of notoriously terrible with budgeting because you get a pile of cash every single day. So it's kind of like long-term budgeting isn't really something I ever did or was good at or, you know, knew how to do. So I'm definitely looking further into the future now, especially because it can be kind of feast or famine. If you have a run where you're just jamming sessions back to back together, cool, tuck some of that money away because there's going to be a week that's a lot slower or a month that's a lot slower and that's got to be okay. Like, you got to survive through those slower months. Yeah, with the mastering gig, and then I, you know, I had supplement with freelance recording around town as well. So I have, especially since we started this business, I have a lot more security in that way, just because we are pretty consistently busy here. Do you and Ed just pay yourselves a salary 
No, we pay ourselves based on the hours of engineering that we do. And then we have an hourly rate for administrative work as well. So two different rates depending on the job that we're doing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the, there's a million ways that could work, but basically yeah. you chalk down the hours that you do and you get paid on that. Does any money go back into the business to be held? Yeah, quite a fair amount of it goes back to the business to be held. And part of why we structured it that way was because when we took the place over, we really didn't know what the numbers were going to look like. And there are so many peaks and valleys in the business and in the industry in general. We never just sort of take it for granted that it's always going to be busy, you know. So so we, we definitely try to keep enough in reserve so that we're always comfortable. Here's a potential rabbit hole question. How do you deal with health care? Oh, we don't. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've looked into buying healthcare personally and buying it, you know, as the company for us. And it just, the math never makes sense to me. So for as many plans as I've looked at and as many times as I've looked into it, I just cannot equate the payout to the benefit as a wise purchase. So the approach there is stay healthy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On that topic. <laughs> On that topic, outside of mastering, do you have any routines or habits that you find critical for your life to be moving forward in a positive way? Yes. I definitely need physical exercise to stay happy and healthy. One of my saving graces for my psychological and emotional health is my motorcycle. Riding my motorcycle regularly keeps me really grounded and kind of helps with my anxious energy and, and keeps me centered. Allows you to kind of just place your mind or concentrate on other things. and yes. It's just you're doing something else completely. So Yeah, of course, Pacific Northwest is it's a cliche about the rain and how much it rains there. Does that affect your day-to-day -day in terms of how you feel and how do you counter that? Especially, you know, because riding a motorcycle in the rain, first of all, is, is a bit of a challenge, right? Depends on how much rain's coming down, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But are there other things that you do to counter long stents of rain? Yeah, and seasonal affective disorder is real, and it can definitely grip you if you're susceptible. And, I, you know, as a Californian and someone used to a lot of sun year-round, it is always a challenge when the dark season comes around. And if I can get ahead of it, exercise, hiking, being outdoors, and physically active are things that prove to be really helpful for me. Just getting out. It's really easy to get hibernate when that weather comes around and just trying to kind of fight that and not let it take hold. Yeah. The temptation to huddle inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is great for studio work. <laughs> you know, you're in a, if you're in a studio in a recording session, there's no windows anyway. It kind of doesn't matter. You, but you all seem to have uh, quite a bit of light in there. Yeah, we do here. The, the Mastering Studios, really, we're really lucky with the windows we have in here. Watching the birds. Talk to me about the freelance work you do outside of Mastering, where you're in studios. I find that, first of all, I find that a positive thing. But I do find it an unusual thing. It seems like a lot of dedicated Mastering engineers really just narrow cast into yeah. Mastering and don't have anything to do with recording. Yes, I think that's true. I From day one, my approach has always been to diversify and, you know, stay busy where I can and use my skills and my, my assets where they are useful. 
I love, love, love recording sessions. I love the energy that goes on when a good take goes down and just the creativity that can happen there in, in a recording session. And I love tweaking out about that vocal tone and getting things just right. I need diversity in my life or I get bored and I feel stagnant and I just like a personal trait of mine, I can tend to just kind of want to move on completely if I don't have enough diversity going on. Interesting. And I'm assuming that mastering is, is your primary gig. Yeah. Uh, does it change your perspective on the decisions you make in the studio? Absolutely. Yes. As a mastering engineer, I am an intimate witness to the culmination of a lot of decisions that have been made up to that point. And I feel like from that vantage point, I know what to watch out for, what subtleties during recording might become big glaring blemishes during mastering. And getting the tones right from the get-go is so important. It's definitely made me a better recording engineer. And vice versa, I'm sure it yeah. gives you a good perspective in the mastering world because you can kind of look into a mix and go, ah, okay, uh -huh. they probably did this. Yep. I can solve and readjust yeah. accordingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or or even, you know, sometimes I'm asked for feedback, and so I have a good bearing on the language to provide that for a recording and mix engineer. What do you use to manage clients' masters? And, you know, if I came in and I said, hey, you know, there's something I did like 10 years ago, can you pull it up and can you talk us through a little bit about generally how that your system there works? What do you use? What are your ideas there? Yeah. So it's all about having a file management system in place and then sticking to it. So 10 years ago, it was RFI and all projects were moved to DVD at the end of the project. So they get pulled off. We're getting pulled off of our servers and moved to DVD. And so we have all of those DVDs. We can't guarantee that they're not corrupt but we keep them in a temperature controlled kind of and dry as we can environment. And, you know, it has not happened yet that we've pulled a project up and had it not come back correctly. So with the little futzing around, uh, we usually can get it to come back. And so the DVDs are all in storage. It's all organized by date. We also have a project log. So we have this really giant Excel spreadsheet that goes back to, I think, 2005 of every project that's ever been done here and in RFI in that time frame from then to now. And so we can refer to that. And if a client's like, oh, I think it was in 2000 or 2004, or we can look it up in that database and track it down that way. We Usually we can track it down. Have you changed your methods? So now instead of DVDs, we have external hard drives. First of all, we have a larger server space, so things can stay active on our servers for longer now. But then eventually when things get archived and they need to come off of our servers, then we'll put it onto external hard drives. And so those are also organized by date and duplicated. And we are we are also working on an off-site backup system as well. You're in Seattle, home of Amazon. Yeah. So is a cloud-based system with, say, Amazon servers, uh, is that something that you've explored or? We did look into that. It's not cost effective for the amount of data we have to pull and the amount of times we would need to access it. Okay. You know, we have a tech support company that's helping us design a system and we've just upgraded our audio machines. So we have enough hardware, we have enough computers and enough servers and enough storage drives and all of that to, to put a system in place on our own. And, you know, that's an interesting thing is that it's another part of the business data management 
Yes, big time. Would you ever consider that the client should take responsibility for that, for their own material? Every day. (laughs) Yeah. And many do. Most of our clients that have been through several albums already are pretty on it about making sure their own data is their own and that they have it. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I will answer your question. I don't necessarily think it is our job to keep every single one and zero we ever record forever. Yeah. Because that's a lot. (laughs) I mean, that's so many years and so much data. And frankly, I'm not sure I legally own that data. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's kind of a weird gray area, but we have it and we're kind of expected to have it. So we do our best to have it. Yeah. I would assume that by just having it, it helps you stay competitive because, you know, if you've got it, you're kind of in the position to assume more work on it if that's what it's being recalled for. Absolutely. And there's a good faith element too. You know, if somebody goes, oh, my hard drive crashed and that's where my project was. Can you help me out? It was from 2004. And if our answer is, yes, we have it, then that's one more sort of additional service in our infrastructure that we provide. In addition to being able to shepherd the projects forward, we can also have that in place for people when it's needed. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Yeah, it's it's something I, I struggle with often in my mind about, is this my responsibility? I've got a setup here at my home where my, my studio is. And I had somebody uh, reach out the other day about a project from 2000, 2001, and I had it all. Lucky. I know, because I mean, we're we're almost talking about that's bordering on twenty years there. Yeah, and I often wonder. It's like, well, is this really my responsibility? Because you know, like, there's a a system always on, always backing up to the cloud here, uh, and it's redundant. And I always ask myself when I see the the electric bill, I think maybe I need to start figuring something different out. Yeah. But I never get around to it. So that's that, that's why I, I kind of, I bring that up because it's of my own experiences. So Yeah. And having it automated, I think is key. So up to now, it's been a manual, our daily backup is a manual thing that we do at the end of each day or the end of each project. And we're humans. So 
<laughs> we're a little less consistent than an automated program. And so it's going to be helpful to have that automated for sure. Work-life balance. How do you manage it? How does it work for you? I think the key for me is to stay really flexible and to know that when the work comes in, I need to take it. I need it. I need to hustle. And then in slower times, maybe don't stress as much that it's slow and take advantage of it and take a trip or go on a bike ride or hang out with friends a little more or whatever. It's definitely a lesson in flexibility. Excellent. Yeah, and the calendar is huge for me. I have friends that get super annoyed with how how calendary I am, but I have to, or I I won't do anything but work. If it's not on the calendar, I won't do anything but work. Yeah. <laughs> so I love the calendar. Yeah. Runs my life. Me too. <laughs> Rachel, it's been great to meet you and fantastic you to learn yeah, about Resonant. So for the audience in our show notes for this episode, resonantmastering.com, right? That is correct, yes. Okay. If, if you want to learn more about Rachel and Resonant Mastering and Ed, head on over to the show notes for today and uh, check that out. All right, Rachel, will you take care? Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Matt. And stay dry in that rain there. Will do. Okay. Take care. All right. Rachel Field here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Want to make sure and thank our friend, Mr. Cliff Truesdale for the Working Class Audio theme music, Chuck Smith for his wonderful voice, and Anne-Marie Plo for her editing prowess. Thank you for being here with me every week and continue to do so. Let's make it a habit, shall we? And until next time, as usual, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.